0: We have been going through the book of Malachi together and uh, studying through, and it's not very common to find a church that goes through the entire book of Malachi, and in fact, if you've ever heard a sermon out of the book of Malachi, it's probably been on the passage that we're going to look at today. Uh, and, And if not that one, then one that we covered a few weeks ago, the one where famously, people will quote it, it says, God hates divorce, and they misuse that passage to make people feel guilty, Uh, and very similarly, the passage we're going to look at today is one that is misused often, you probably know it, the verse where God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and I will open the floodgates of heaven, right? How many of you have heard that verse before? How many of you have heard a sermon on that? How many of you left that sermon feeling like the only thing the preacher wants from me is more money, Right? Either that, or we get into this thing called prosperity theology, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I want us to start this morning by looking at this passage, and I want to put you at ease a little bit. This is not going to be a sermon about money. Amen? All right, this is not about money. This passage is about something way more than just your money. Because let's be honest, God doesn't need your money, does he? Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. So, how much of the world is God's? All of it. How much of, of your money does He own? All of it. If He needs it, He'll take it. But He doesn't need it because He's God. All right. So, let's jump right in. We're gonna we're gonna start with the verse that we left off with last week, uh, chapter three, verse six. Says this: it says because I Yahweh have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Since the day of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? You ask, how do we rob you? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. Tenth is tithe. Tithe means one-tenth by not making the payments of the tithe or tenth and the contributions you are suffering under a curse yet you the whole nation are still robbing me bring the full tenth bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house test me in this way says the lord of hosts see if i will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure i will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin The produce of your land and the vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is a very dangerous passage, as I mentioned before, and it's often used wrongly to either guilt people into giving money to the church or to promote something called prosperity theology. How many of you have ever heard that term before, prosperity theology? Prosperity, prosperity theology is a doctrine created by man, centered on man, dependent on man, where the ultimate goal is not God's glory but man's happiness. Prosperity theology is unfortunately often what most people think of when they think of TV preachers and Christianity. It's the, the pastor on TV, TV that tells you, if you'll just send me that check. That God will pour out his blessing on you, right? It teaches that the more you give to God, the more God gives you financially. As if he's like some sort of ATM machine or slot machine that once you put in enough, you finally get something back. And that if you're not receiving things back, then the problem is that you aren't giving in enough faith. That you just need to give more, that you need to believe more. Because God's ultimate goal for you is to have money and health. It doesn't take long reading in scripture to see that that is not reality. And they will take passages like this where God says, test me, bring in the tithe and see if I don't open the floodgates. And they misuse this passage to abuse people, to abuse people. And you can go back earlier in the book of Malachi, the message that Stephen preached, uh, I believe God talks about smearing something on the faces of people that teach stuff like this, uh, so you can go back and read that passage, but this is a very dangerous and very harmful theology, and, and I, the only reason I tell you is that you've got to be aware, because there's a lot of stuff out there that we have to be careful that when we read one passage that we really measure it against all of Scripture. And that when we hear something, even from my own mouth, I, I challenge you, I encourage you, please go home, do your own research, read the Bible for yourselves, and make sure that what you hear lines up with what God's word actually says. All right, but as I said, this is not going to be a message about money, because I believe that God is, is truly after the hearts of his people. And we've seen over and over and over again throughout the book of Malachi that God's people's hearts are far from him. And this whole book is a love letter to those people, calling them back to himself. And so in verse 6, he begins by reminding them of this. He says, "'Because I, Yahweh, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed.'" And then he goes on in verse 7 and he says, Since the days of your father you have turned from my statutes, you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you ask, how can we return to you? We start with these verses and we see that very quickly God's faithfulness to his people is contrasted with Israel's historic unfaithfulness. But God tells him in verse 6, he says, you exist, nation of Israel, people of Israel, you exist because of my unchanging will for you to exist. I am your creator. I created you. You go back to Abraham, who was a man who had nothing, had done nothing, and was nothing. But God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he, by his grace, chooses Abraham. And he makes this great nation. And he's telling his people, don't forget. I am your creator. I am your sustainer. Later on, he says, you are robbing me. And what is it that that the people are robbing him of? It's not money. They're robbing him of his rightful place as number one in their lives. As the one being recognized as God. And they've taken God off of his throne. They've taken God off of his rightful place. The one who ought to have control and authority and rule in their lives. They've removed him and they've replaced him with another God. And they ask this question at the end of verse 7. How can we return to you? Now this is is a big problem because in their minds, they never left. We saw this last week. We're going to see it again this week and the next week. In their minds, God is the one who has abandoned them. And they can't see that, they have, that they've even walked away from him. And their question is, how can we return? God, we've never left. We're right here. We're going through all the motions. We're still bringing our sacrifices. We're still doing all the stuff that you told us to do. We haven't left. God, you're the one that's moved. But we know that that's not really the case We've seen throughout Malachi how they're just going through the motions of all, all the worship that God has prescribed. There's, they're, uh, they're going through all these motions, but they're completely lacking in a true relationship with God. And God is trying to remind them that it's not just about going through the motions. It's not just about showing up to church on Sunday morning and making sure that you get your little quiet time in and checking that box off the list and making sure that you put your check in the offering plate and checking that box off the list. God says, I have so much more that I want for you. I don't just want you to go through the motions. I, God, Yahweh, I, I want a relationship with you. I want you to know me intimately and for me to know you intimately. And God is calling them back to a faithful covenant relationship with Him. What is a, what is a covenant relationship? Um, I only perform covenant marriages. There's a big difference between a covenant marriage and a legal marriage. Uh, I no longer sign the state certificate for marriage um, for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons that I do this is because I want to make sure that that couple that I'm marrying is truly committed to a lifetime together. And if their only concern is about, well, how do we get the legal stuff taken care of? uh, And and there are certain things you want to take care of legally, but typically, the reason a couple wants to make sure they have the legal side taken care of is cuz they're planning on divorce. They're going into the marriage planning on divorce. Well, if we don't if we don't have that legal certificate, then what happens if we divorce? Well, if you go into a covenant marriage recognizing that this is a lifetime together, that doesn't matter. That's not the first thing on my mind. So what is a covenant relationship? And I found this quote by Tim Keller. He says this, A covenant relationship is more loving and more intimate than merely a legal relationship, but more binding and enduring and accountable than merely a personal relationship. So on one hand, there's more love because it's a strong covenant. There's more intimacy than simply just a legal agreement. But on the other hand, it's more binding, enduring, and accountable than simply a personal relationship. God says, hey, There are some things that I'm accountable for and some things that you're accountable to me for, but there's a lot more love here than simply a legal relationship. Way more love. I love that explanation that it's the best of both worlds. And he's not calling, uh, not only calling this rebellious people back to obedience to the Lord, but he's also inviting an undeserving people into an intimate relationship with their father. God's ultimate desire for his people is that they would experience intimacy with him. And we see this spelled out clearly in the very first few verses of, of the book of Malachi. It's a call to God's people. When he says, return to me, he says, he says it over and over again. He says, turn, turn, turn back to me, return to me, turn, turn over and over and over again. It's this idea of repentance. Repentance. Repentance is a word that's often misunderstood. A lot of times we think about repentance and we think it means simply just being sorry for what we've done. Or sometimes we think about repentance and we think it means that I have to just change the way that I live. But really, biblical repentance is twofold. It involves, uh, literally, in the New Testament, the word repentance means changing of the mind. Right? Change your mind. When Peter stands up and he says, repent, every single one of you, What is he saying? He's saying, change your mind about who Jesus is. Change your mind about who Jesus is and what he has done. Biblical repentance involves a changing of our mind and of our heart towards our own personal sin. And second, it involves a desire to obey God's commands. That we would say, God, what I have done is not right. I want to obey you. I want to follow you in what is right. Change in our attitude in our hearts and our minds towards our own personal sin has to be present for there to be repentance. But there also has to be a change in our actions. We can't just say, God, I am so sorry for doing what I just did, and then turn right around and do it. That's not repentance. And we can't just say, well, I'm going to try better. I'm going to do better. God, I'm going to do better. I promise I'm going to do better, but never acknowledge that what we've done is sin and never change our mind that what we did Offended, God, we have to have both. God's call to his people is a call to stop indulging in the flesh and start enjoying an intimate relationship with him. It's the true call of a faithful husband whose bride is uncertain of his infection and insecure about her own beauty, yet she's reminded of his unchanging love. It's the call of a father to his child, who are uncertain about his anger and fearful of his rejection, yet they're reminded of his unrelenting affection for them. When God says, return to me, he says, return to faithful dependence on me, your creator, your sustainer, your ruler. Let me be number one in your life. Let me be number one in your life. So far, these people have demonstrated that they are living independent of God. They want nothing more to do with him than to just show up and go through the motions and their hearts are far from him. He's demonstrated that in a number of ways and he's going to demonstrate it now through their finances. He's saying, look, here's the real problem is that you have removed me from your life. You've removed me from my throne as God and you've put yourself there. You've become independent. Independent of me. And you have made yourself sovereign in your own lives. And he says, first place, we, one of the first places we can see this is in your finances. That you're robbing me of the tithe. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You ask, how do we rob you? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under curse, yet the whole nation, you are still robbing me. So let's talk about the tithe for a second. What is the tithe? Tithe, the tenth, simply means one-tenth. It was the first of all their income, the first of their crops that they were supposed to give. They were supposed to set it aside and give it to the Lord. And they were supposed to give it to the Levites. The Levites were a special tribe of people that were set aside for service to God. This is where all the priests came from. But even the priests themselves were not excluded. They had to give a tenth of what they received from the rest of the people. And so these tithes, these offerings that they would bring were used for the ministry and the maintenance of the temple. But they were also used to help cover uh, costs and ministry to the poor, to the orphans, and to the widows. And so without all of these things, without the ability to pay the priests to help them as they ministered before the Lord, their ministry was beginning to suffer. And what's interesting is that earlier in chapter 1, God addresses the quality of the sacrifices that they're bringing. You remember that they were bringing lame animals and sacrificing those. Now he's addressing the quantity of the sacrifice that they're bringing. He says, hey, bring the full 10th. The implication here is that they're maybe bringing not 10%, but, well, I'll, I'll give 3%. I'll give 2%. I'll give 5%. And I'll keep the rest for myself. And why is this an issue? Again, does God need our money? No. Does God need our money? No. He doesn't need anything from us. So what's the big deal about the tithe? Why is it commanded in the Old Testament law? It's a a very tangible way for us to remind ourselves that I'm not in charge here. That I'm going to demonstrate my dependence on God, my faith in God, my trust in Him, by watching Him provide. By watching Him take 90% and do more with 90% than I could do with 100%. It was a way to acknowledge that, God, you are first in my life. You are first in my life. And I'm going to remind myself of that every month, every week, every day, however often you do it, by tithing to you, giving you the first fruit. Now for us, most of us, it's as simple as writing a check when we think about the tithe. But think about the life of the people in ancient Israel. It wasn't just as simple as writing a check. This was their crop. And when they brought in the first 10% of their crop, there was no guarantee that the rest of the crop wouldn't be wiped out by famine or by plagues. There was no guarantee. So this was a huge step of faith for them to say, God, I don't know what's going to happen with the rest of my crop, but I've taken in the first 10% and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you. I'm going to trust you that everything's going to be okay, that you're going to provide. Ultimately, it was a way of acknowledging him as their creator, sustainer, and ruler. I'm taking myself off the throne. I'm moving myself out of the driver's seat and I'm going to trust God's sovereign control. I don't own this life. You do. I don't own it. You do. And we ask ourselves, well, how, how do we rob God in our lives today? How do we rob him of his rightful place as number one in our life? The first way I think that we rob God is this, that we rob God when we feel like an owner. When we feel like an owner, we rob God. When we say this is my stuff, this is my house, these are my kids, this is my life, this is my job, my car, my, 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 who's in charge in that relationship? I'm asking. Does that sound like the language of someone who is trusting God in every area of their life, who's made him number one in their life? We have to understand that we're not owners, but we're managers. Often we don't think we're robbing God, but really we're robbing him again of his rightful place as number one in our lives. Verse 10 says this. He says, Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Notice he doesn't say bring Your tithe. Let's look at that. What does it say? Verse 10 bring what? The full tithe. Bring the full tenth. Whose tenth? Not yours. The implication is bring my tithe. Bring what's owed to me into my house and see if I won't bless it. Let me ask you what is it in your life? It may be your finances. But I'm willing to bet that for most of us, it's not just our finances, where we feel like an owner, where we we feel like this is mine, and God, I'm happy for you to have these other parts of my life, but this is mine. And I forget who it was, I, I, I want to say it was Sam Houston, but it was another, it may have been another historical figure who, who put his trust in Christ, and his wife wanted nothing more than for him to be baptized, and before he gets baptized, he gets in the river, and he pulls out his wallet, and he holds it up, and he goes under with his wallet up above the water, and he told the preacher, you can have everything except this, right, he's like, you can't have this, and what is it in your life that you're holding up out of the water, That you've committed your whole life to the Lord except that one thing. Because you still want to control it. You still want that ownership. Is it your kids? Man, I can tell you for me, sometimes that's that's a big struggle. To let go of my kids. To trust that God has them. And that I'm doing all the things that I need to do to pour into them. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they have their own decisions to make. And they're still young, and I still have a lot of influence and input into what they think, say, and do, but the day is coming. And am I going to try to cling to that and try to control every moment of their lives? Or am I going to let God be in control? Is it my job? Do I, do I plan out every little thing and try to take control of every little thing, or do I hand that over to the Lord? and trust him in those small things. What is it for you? What area are you robbing God? We're not owners, we're managers. This past week in, with my kids, we have a little family devotional that we do every every night at the dinner table, and this week we got to Matthew chapter 5, uh, I believe it was chapter 5, and where Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so we talked about that and we talked about how God owns all of our stuff and how it's difficult when we feel like owners, when we have a bunch of stuff, it's difficult for us to see our need for God in our lives. Anybody ever been there? Life's going great. You get a promotion and all of a sudden you find yourself like, whoa, I'm really far from God. Why does that happen? Well, because in my mind, I don't feel like I need God right now. And so we started having this conversation with our kids about stuff and about all the things in their life. And my, one of my sons, Malachi, has a little stuffed animal. They all have a stuffed animal that they've had since the day they were born. Malachi's is Rafi. And I forgot to bring it this morning, but I was going to bring you Rafi. It's this little like beanie baby looking doll that used to sit up straight, but now the head goes like this. Because he's actually Rafi number two, because a couple of years ago, Rafi got a hole in him. And uh, we swapped him out one Christmas. We, we ordered actually two extra Raffis, because Raffy goes everywhere. Raffy has been everywhere. And so I was talking with the kids about stuff. And I said, son, let me ask you, what if God called you to give Raffy to a little boy or a little girl who didn't have any toys? Would you do it? He said, daddy, I'd be really sad. I said, but would you do it? He said, daddy, I would do it but I'd be really sad because I love my Raffi. But if God told me to do it, I would do it. And my other son stepped in and he said, Dad, that's really hard. That's really hard because I like my things. But if God wants me to do that, then I'll do it. Six years old. Six years old, and, and, and it was interesting to me how, how well they were able to understand that sometimes God calls us to do hard things and we have to be willing to do it to, to, again, make sure that he is number one in our lives. Now, I should have taken that opportunity to say, great, let's go clean the playroom out and get rid of some stuff. But we didn't. Uh, we let them keep most of their toys. So we rob God when we feel like an owner. Number two is we rob God when we act to avoid a curse. When we act to avoid a curse, look at verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that... It will not ruin the produce of your land, and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit. These people believed they could avoid deficiency by disobeying God. In their minds, if I keep this extra 10% for myself, then I can avoid the famine, the plague, and all these other things that could possibly be coming, and I'll still have plenty for myself. All I have to do is rob God. And so they find themselves in this place where they're not finding their security in God, the God himself because they fear losing what they have. How often do we withhold our time, our energy, our money because we want to avoid what we imagine as our own personal hell on this earth. If I get up early and do a quiet time, I'm not going to have energy to make it through the rest of the day. If I do my quiet time then I won't get to get into work a few minutes early before the guy next to me who may get that promotion. If I give to the church then I may not have enough to buy that new flat screen that I want. To buy that new boat that I want. To do the thing that I want. If I if I volunteer on a Sunday morning I'm not going to have enough time to to go to the lake. I mean, what if they schedule me on a sunny day in the summertime and I just really want to go to the lake? If I go serve this family next door, I'm not going to have enough time for my hobbies, the things that I want to do. And we end up robbing God because we're so afraid that we're not going to get what we want. God says, if you will trust me, I'll make sure that there's enough there. There's plenty there. And I I can tell you, I have never woken up and had a quiet time and looked back at the end of the day and said, "Man, man, if I had just skipped my quiet time, I would have gotten so much more done. I've never gone and served someone else and walked away feeling so tired that I didn't have enough energy to do the things that I still needed to get done. Never happened. I've never given money to the church or to a ministry, or to a missionary, and looked back on that and thought, man, I sure wish I had that money back. I didn't get to eat today because I gave that money. That's never happened to me. Never in my life has that happened to me. You know what does happen? I get to see God work in some amazing ways. I serve someone, help them with some manual labor, help them move, something that I hate doing, Nobody likes helping other people move, but we do it because we haven't figured out a way out of it yet. But you help them move and you're dog tired by the time you get home, but you still manage to get everything done. Or I wake up and I have my quiet time and I realize that, man, if I had missed this, then I would have missed so much more today. God multiplies my time and things get done faster. Or I give. And I see God... I don't have everything I want, but I certainly have everything I need. It begins to change the way we think about things. Lastly, we rob God when we think wrongly about fruitfulness. The Israelites were robbing God because they had redefined prosperity to be something other than what God defines it to be. They thought God's promise for prosperity meant that they would get everything they wanted, not everything that they needed instead of focusing on receiving joy and peace and contentment that comes from obedience to God. They were, they were looking for everything that they wanted. They wanted all these things. And God says, it it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way that you just get to come to me like a genie in a bottle and you put in your token and I come out, and you get to grant, get, have your wishes granted. They end up giving what is God's to something else that they deemed better. Anytime we rob God because we think we can save the prosperity for ourselves, or we think wrongly about prosperity, we end up taking what is God's and we give it to another God, typically ourselves. Typically ourselves. In, in our society, I think one of the the biggest idols that we face is the idol of ourself. And we become so selfish, we become so independent that we think, I'm just going to take a little bit from God over here because I need it. And we fail to realize that if we would just give God what he asks for and demonstrate our trust in him with our time, with our money, with our energy, that he would bless everything that we have. And that we would find that we have everything that we need. Not everything that we want, necessarily, but everything that we need. And it's amazing to watch him provide. Verses 10 through 12 are like any other passage. In fact, other passages of scripture were told, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Yet here, he says, put me to the test in this. Let me be number one in your life. Let me have that position. Let me take the steering wheel. Let me be the pilot. And see if your life isn't better. Now, I don't know how else to explain this other than to use my children. And and I tell them all the time that, that, look, your life can go one of two ways. You can fight against me and not, not go along with the rules that we have in our house and the expectations that we have set. And it is not going to go well for you. There will be consequences. There are going to be things that you're going to miss out on. When you disobey, there are things that mommy and daddy want to do for you that you then have to miss out on because you've chosen to disobey. The other option is that you obey the rules, that you live according to the expectations and the rules that we've set out for you. And when you do that, guess what? You don't get as many spankings, you don't get sent to your room, you don't have to miss dessert. If you eat your vegetables, when we say eat your vegetables, guess what you get? You get dessert. You get a blessing. But if you don't do what mommy and daddy ask you to do, then you miss out on that. You miss out on that. And I think so often we think about curses as like, I I always think of Bruce Almighty. Does anybody remember that movie where he's standing there in the rain? He's like, smite me, almighty smiter. And he's waiting for this lightning bolt to come down and strike him. And we think that's what it means for God to curse us the the longer i walk with the lord the more i realize that the true curse is being outside of his will and missing the true blessings that he has for us that when i walk according to his will when i walk according to his commands that life just is better it's more simple there's more peace how many of you were here with us when we went through Dave Ramsey financial piece a couple years ago or went through it this past year when we offered it again? Uh, man, I could tell you, I thought I was doing a good job honoring God with my finances until I went through that class. And I realized that there was still room for improvement. And over the last two years, my wife and I have made an effort to align our finances with, uh, with the principles taught from Scripture in that course in our life has been a lot less stressful. I'm not making any more money than I was two years ago. But there's a lot more money left over at the end of the month rather than having more month at the end of the paycheck. And nothing has changed other than the way that we handle our finances according to God's principles. Same thing with my time. When I handle my time according to God's principles and I put him first... I find that there's more than enough. There's more than enough. But these people had redefined fruitfulness. I love, I love these verses because God says that he's going to open the floodgates. Some translations say, I'll open a window. And in scripture, that's often used to talk about sending rain. He says, I'm going to send rain. But notice this. Does he promise them more land? Yes or no? Does he promise them more land? No. Does he promise to increase their borders? No. Does he promise to give them more stuff? No. God says, if you honor me first, I'll take what you already have. That thing that you think is dry, that thing that you think is unproductive, I'm going to take that, and I'm going to make it productive. You see the difference? We think God's blessing means having more stuff, rather than simply allowing him to take what we think is unproductive and dry. And make it productive. Make it a blessing for us. The other thing, he, he says he will make them fruitful. God promises to remove the hindrances to their fruitfulness. Notice he doesn't say, I'll remove the things that you think are a hindrance to your fruitfulness, but I will remove the devourer. I'll remove these famines and things that are true hindrances to your fruitfulness. Because here's the thing. Sometimes in my life, there are things that I view as a hindrance to fruitfulness that God is actually using to make me more fruitful. There are things that I can't understand why God is allowing them to happen in my life that when I look back on them, on the other side of things, I see that God is actually using it to make me more fruitful. So we have to understand, we have to define prosperity the way God defines prosperity. I want to ask you this morning, in what way are you robbing God? You've taken control from him and you've put yourself in the driver's seat. What do you need to do to surrender that control to him? What is your rafi? that one thing in your life that God says I know it's going to be hard for you to give me control of this but I want you to trust me put him to the test see if he doesn't take that thing and make it productive if he doesn't cause it to produce fruit in your life put him to the test desire his fruitfulness will you pray with me Father we recognize that so often we rob you by not allowing you to have the number one place in our life. We rob you by trying to control things on our own, by trying to do the things that we think we should do to get the things that we think we need. When in reality, they're just things that we want. Lord, would you break our hearts this morning? Would you draw us back into relationship with you? Would you allow us to return to you? Would you change our hearts and minds about our attitude? Our attitude of independence, Lord, that we would see that that is a sin against you. And would you change the desires of our hearts not to be for independence, but Mm -hmm. dependence on you through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to surrender control, to the one true creator, sustainer, and sovereign of our lives. would we trust you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I want to move to a time now, uh, take two. Take two is simply a time where we take two minutes and we allow ourselves to think about what God is saying to us and what we are going to do about what God is saying. And I want to challenge you in this time to think through what is it that God is saying to me this morning. And I'm willing to bet this. I'm willing to bet as soon as we started talking about robbing God. And as soon as I started talking about an area of your life where you've taken control from God. And you're robbing him of his rightful place. I'm willing to bet that every single one of us had something pop into our mind. Every single one of us already know what that area is. And I want to challenge you this morning to take these two minutes and write that down. Confess that to the Lord and say, God, I know it's not going to be easy to change, and I don't even know if I'm ready to hand this control back over to you, but help me, help me make your desires my desires, align my desires with you. Would you help me to hand over control to you? And then would you just write down what it is you're going to do to start trusting him in that area? Whatever it is, I encourage you to just take some time to do that. Perhaps you're here today and you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You haven't trusted him in that area. And you're here and you think that you can be good enough that somehow you can control whether or not you end up in heaven. And let me tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. We very clearly see in Scripture that our salvation is not dependent on ourself, but it's dependent on God's grace and faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, that on the cross, Jesus completed all the work that needed to be done for our salvation. And we simply have to trust in Him. We rest in Him and surrender that control to Him and say, Lord, I'm trusting in You. If you're here this morning and have not done that, this is the perfect time to do that. I'll be back at the connection table. You can find me there. I would love to talk to you more about that. Whatever it is God is saying to you, I encourage you at this time, let's take two.